Welcome! This is Field Points of View with Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson, a podcast about macro markets and investing brought to you by Fieldpoint Private. Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson work for Fieldpoint Private and are investment advisors registered with Fieldpoint Private Securities. All opinions expressed by Cameron or Johnny or any podcast guest are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Fieldpoint Private. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you are encouraged to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions. It is possible that clients of Fieldpoint Private will have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Fieldpoint Private Securities is an SEC-registered broker-dealer and registered investment advisor and is a member of FINRA. Hello, and welcome to Field Points of View. I'm Cameron Dawson, Chief Market Strategist at Fieldpoint Private. In today's episode of Field Points of View, we have three of our very own as special guests. Tim Tully, Dan Napoli, and Don Ullman are joining us today on the podcast and are board members of Fieldpoint Private. They each have a long history of working in the finance industry, so there's a lot of wisdom and perspective that is shared in this discussion. Over the past couple of months, we have been featuring conversations with leading financial thinkers that have a wide range of views. Tim, Dan, and Don make good arguments and share the view with some of our other guests that this surge in debt levels and the unprecedented degree of fiscal and monetary intervention poses some kind of risk to markets and economies going forward. Though how this risk plays out is still somewhat hard to define at this time. This contrasts with other guests who do not see significant systemic risk coming out of these interventions and have a view that they were a natural progression in the evolution of policy. We will continue to bring on guests to expand these discussions and viewpoints. With how rapidly markets and economies have experienced change in the past year and a half, this is fertile ground for new ideas, new policy prescriptions, and of course, new investment opportunities. So with that introduction, we bring you today a conversation with Tim Tolley, Dan Napoli, and Don Ullman, board members of Fieldpoint Private. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, this is a very exciting episode of the podcast because we have three of our own board members uh, from Fieldpoint Private joining us today to give perspective, not just on markets, but also on uh, the industry and investing and banking. And so thank you all for joining. We're thrilled to have you. Happy to be here. Thank you, Cameron. Wonderful. So why don't we uh, have each of you quickly introduce yourselves before we jump into the questions. So Mr. Tim Tolley, we'll start with you. <laughs> All right, Cameron, Johnny, thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, I'm Tim Tully. Um, I've been a director of Fieldpoint for uh, about eight years. Um, I've been serving as chairman for about six. Um, prior to that, um, you know, I, I've been in the investment business uh, kind of my entire career. Uh, beginning uh, out of college as an option trader and um, uh, had some time as a real estate investor. And, um, and then people accuse me of running a family office right now, but uh, in addition to what I'm doing at Fieldpoint. So um, that's a pretty broad background, Cameron, but um, trying to be brief because these other two guys have a lot more to say about themselves than I do. <laughs> I, I, well, I'm not sure about that, but we'll use that to roll right into Don Ullman. Would you mind introducing yourself? 
Good morning, Cameron. Thanks for having me. My career was spent with, uh, within fixed income and research. I was um, head of fixed income research and chief operating officer of global research at Merrill Lynch for over a decade. And I had similar management positions at a couple of other firms. And I'm currently serving on the board of a mutual funds complex and doing some consulting for a mortgage insurer. I've been on the board uh, of FieldPoint for about five years, serving under Mr. Tully. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'm happy to be with, with, with you today. Wonderful. Thank you for joining. And last but certainly not least, Stan Napoli. Hi. Uh, I guess going from uh, current uh, backwards, uh, FieldPoint now 12 years as a director, uh, one of the founders as well. Um, prior to that, uh, I retired about 13 years ago from Merrill Lynch, where I spent about 20 years of my career. At Merrill Lynch, I was responsible for government securities trading. I was the chairman of uh, Merrill Lynch GSI for about eight years, and then uh, was moved up to create a uh, the executive committee of Merrill, but formed a the risk management function there, uh, which didn't exist, and did that uh, did that for 10 years uh, after that. I started my career actually at Bankers Trust um, back in the uh, back in the '70s, and again grew up in in, uh, in government securities. And of course, the '70s and '80s is when the government security market was the hot market. So that's where a lot of my formal training came. And then, of course, as as we gravitated up to learn more and more about the markets, when I was uh, in the risk management function. So as, as all the listeners can probably hear, we have a lot of wisdom uh, on the podcast today and a lot of experience. So with that, I think let's, let's jump into a discussion about markets and where you think the world is going. And I think a great place to start is just this observation that both monetary and fiscal policy have changed meaningfully in the past year in response to the pandemic. And so do you think that these changes in policy will have lasting impacts on the markets and what kind of assets perform the best? Or do you think we revert back to the status quo of the last 10 years of, of pretty narrow leadership, U.S. assets outperforming, growth outperforming, et cetera? Why don't I start it off? Um, I think that what we have seen is, to is totally unprecedented. And there is no good answer because we don't know the ramifications of a of the Fed between the Fed and the Treasury injecting five to seven trillion dollars into our economy because of obviously the 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 COVID experience um, and what the ramifications of that long term. I mean, clearly we're going to have to fund that debt and how that's going to affect interest rates. But more importantly, it's the reason for it is unprecedented in terms of what the ramifications of COVID has been. Um, and, and no one knows the answer, including our genius scientists and our genius medical people still have more questions than they have answers. And I think that, uh, you know, this, this story has a long, long way to play out. And I don't think there's any easy answer here. What I would say is that the Fed's going to have a difficult time when the time comes that it has to reverse all of this. And again, that's unprecedented. It's uncharted waters. And we don't know how that, that's going to work out. Yeah, Danny, I, I would agree with you. I think the Fed is a little bit between a rock and a hard place. They're they're watching it, all the inflation statistics, and we can I know we'll talk about that. And they're doing their best to hew, as you say, to their new regime, which is going to allow inflation to run north of two percent for a while. 
But at some point, they may have to slam on the brakes pretty hard. And it, they risk scaring the markets, whether they're too late or whether they come in uh, forcefully. And I think that regime is going to be extremely difficult for markets. And Cameron, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you know, just the interest rate and the interest payments on the debt we're talking about are enormous. And, um, and, and so I, I do worry. I don't know how it plays out, as Danny says, but, but I, I do worry about, about the debt load that we've taken on as a country. Well, there are competing thoughts on, um, on, on an aspect of that. So one of the ways you it, governments have handled uh, debt loads in the past is through, well, one, one way is taxes, another way is through the inflation, which we touched on a little bit. And so we've had a, a few podcasts on over the last few weeks that with some divergent views on whether this idea of whether inflation is transitory or whether we're in a, a new regime of, of perpetually higher uh, rates of inflation in the future. Where, where do you stand on, on that? idea of transitory or durable inflation? Personally, uh, I, I think there is some transitory inflation now and, and, and utilizing comparables of a year ago to what we're seeing now in energy and, uh, and, and some other uh, uh, areas. But um, I, I, I do think there's a longer term uh, inflationary pressures that that are just it just seems to me they have to they have to raise their their ugly head here going forward. But I don't think it's immediate, but um, I, I think it's out there. I think Tim makes a very good point on the debt and, and a lot of smart people, including Hoisington, that will tell you that growing debt is actually in some sense deflationary because it depresses growth in the main economy. But I think when you look at the sheer size of fiscal spending and the deficit, we may have crossed that, that Rubicon. And yes, if you look at comparable statistics to last year, you can argue that the elevated stats are somewhat transitory. But I think when you look at a lot of the more fundamental changes we've seen, and COVID was merely an accelerant, in my opinion, you look at slowing globalization and the fact that China remains a huge buyer, but no longer a low cost producer of goods and services you see the supply chain bottlenecks and you see virtually all raw materials prices spiking. And then the real issue becomes labor costs. And, you know, again, is it transitory? Are people going to get back to work? Hopefully, yes, in some, some places. But I think you have some real structural imbalances in the labor force that are going to continue to force labor prices and wages higher. We haven't seen that trend interrupted by COVID and wages are still rising. So, expectations may still be anchored, but I think we risk seeing them becoming unanchored in the near future. That's a really good point about inflation expectations because inflation expectations have fallen significantly <clears throat> since the Fed initiated a 2% inflation target. So it's quite interesting coming out of the great financial crisis, you had the Fed say in 2012, we're throwing in a 2% target even though we were dealing more with deflation than we were with inflation. And the history of adding a target on, on actual inflation came from New Zealand in the late 80s when they were dealing with runaway inflation. So now the Fed is saying, 
you know, we will tolerate inflation to move higher above our 2% target. And does that start shifting the mindset of the consumer and the business owner to say, oh, the Fed's not going to step in and put their foot on the brake as soon as we hit 2% or anticipate 2%, but actually let it run hot. And if that happens, do inflation expectations become less anchored as they have been uh, and actually contribute to this movement higher? Well, one thing I learned a long, long time ago, the market is much bigger than the Fed. And the market has perceptions that the Fed really doesn't have a whole handle on it, you know, with a commentary about it is transitory. You know, and there is argument to say that, you know, due to globalization, due to technology, um, the, clearly we have been in more of a deflationary environment than we have inflationary. But at, at, at this point, you know, when you, when you, when you look at um, uh, the market's reaction, the market just doesn't trust it. It doesn't trust, and I think that's why we're getting this kind of volatility. And also, the Fed doesn't really have the long-term answer because it's never gone through it. And of course, one could argue and say, well, you know, our deficits have swelled dramatically and, and, and all this debt's going to have to be refinanced. But other countries around the world's debt has also. So it's almost like the lesser of, if you're the only one that's moving up in, in debt, you've got a problem. But if the whole world's in the same similar situation, it's almost like, well, it's kind of a balance of power, so to speak. But the real question is that as rates boom higher and the, and the cost of that uh, financing becomes more and more dear, that's, that's the real problem. Uh, right now, we're in a 2% environment or 1% environment is one thing. But any, any hint that this is not transitory and that it is, as you pointed out, maybe something for the future, I think we've got a real problem. How do you think the Fed is going to navigate this question around asset prices because it has become sort of the shadow third mandate of the Fed stepping in each time the market has a, a sell-off. Look what you know the Powell pivot in 2018. Has the S&P 500 itself become too big to fail where the Fed is going to continually have to be the, the one that steps in to keep volatility or, or to prevent a big loss of wealth or confidence within the, the real economy? So per personally, um, I worry about that quite a bit. I, I, think the, I think we've gotten used to Big Brother stepping in and, and saving everybody. Um, as Danny was pointing out, though, the Fed's not bigger than the market, and at some point, you can you can only protect to the 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 assets uh, so 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 much. And if the market gets you know wind that you know the government needs to step aside, which I think they'll have to at some point, I think there could be a huge downdraft on asset pricing. Um, but I don't know when that comes. Um, but I'm a f I do fear that we've gotten used to, whether it's the pal put or whatever you want to say, um, I, I, th I think there's a day of reckoning. I don't know when, but at some point you got to let the markets um, be markets. And I think there's too much intervention uh, over the last dozen years or so. Yeah, I, I agree with Tim. I, you know, you're, you're in an environment right now where earnings are still growing even more strongly than some might have expected. And for a while, that probably is going to continue. And there's also a, a bit of a Tina thing. I mean, are you going to buy long bonds, given all that we've just heard? I don't think so. But if you look at where the S&P is today, 
no matter what value you look at, whether you look at CAPE or just regular um, economic value to EBITDA, price to sales, price to earnings, we're at record highs. And I don't know how much further we, you know, further along we go. And to your question about the Fed, even if they want to forestall a correction, what can they do at this point? They're already throwing 120 billion a month at it. And we're getting six trillion dollars potentially of spending. What are they going to do? So I, I have the same opinion that Tim does. And we yep. see yeah. we're at record highs. We're at record highs based on history. But now we're in a new. We're we're setting new history right now, uh, in terms of you know the seven trillion dollars of of liquidity that was in that was just injected, where does the money go? The money has to go somewhere. It has to be invested somewhere. And I think that that is what uh, ratchets your PE to where it is right now. You know, the valuations change because history is, is you know, we can't look back and say, well, this is the way it used to be. Well, we've never injected 7 trillion into an economy. So we have a new question. But the worry that I have is, you know, clearly when you, everything you read about the last year, last year and a half, and how it was climactic for the world, it was certainly, you know, the, it, you weren't, it wasn't only a fear, it was an unknown fear of this virus that none of us have ever experienced. Not only a fear of losing your money, but people from fear of losing their life. This is very different than anything we've had in the past. We're going to come in, it's going to be a boom economy. It's going to, sh it's going to, it's going to uh, come out like gangbusters and it's, and the GDP is going to be up to 8% or 9%, whatever. I don't know about that because all I know is that all we've seen are people saving money. We don't see them spending it. We see people praying down the credit card debts. You see them, you see them saving. Um, they, you know, we talk about velocity of money. It, it, why is it where it is? Because people were just feared. They just, this was a trauma. And I don't know how quickly they're going to come back and change their ways. Well, Danny, I think you raise a, a key point on velocity. I mean, you've got M2 up 25, 26% at, you know, to unprecedented levels with unprecedented steepness, but you've had velocity virtually going the other way going down for the last decade. And if, if that changes, I think all bets are off. But to your point about you know, how quickly that money comes back into the economy and into the banking system, I'll just give you a quick anecdote. My wife and I flew to Chicago last weekend in and out of Newark and O'Hare, mopped, absolutely packed. I think people are really starting to spend. I mean, it is interesting that the response to this uh, this crisis has been different than the great financial crisis, which was only really through QE at the same time that all of that was just getting stuck in bank reserves because you were introducing new regulations into, into the banking system. And so, of course, velocity fell because it was just getting stuck. Now you're doing direct injections of money into the pockets of individuals through stimulus checks, as well as through supplemental unemployment. And so you're circumventing the, the mechanism of, of just going through bank reserves in order to introduce stimulus. So it is one of the reasons why there's this sense that there is almost, there's more money chasing the same amount of goods at the same time as you have all these supply chain constraints. And is that enough to actually change the trajectory of what has been a 40 year downtrend in yield and inflation trends? It's, it's hard to believe me anyway, my, my opinion that, um, that all this spending doesn't have an effect. Um, and, and it just, just, I don't know when, um, 
but it seems to me it's going to have to have an effect. And that raises questions about the dollar and, and the future outlook for the dollar. So any thoughts along that line? I'll just say the dollar, I, I follow the dollar um, from a technical basis. Uh, I always said that you never can learn currencies because you don't know the fundamentals of every currency. There's just too much to look at, but you can within the chart get those fundamentals in the, in the form of those lines. And typically currencies travel in seven to 10 year uh, patterns. And we just broke a, broke a bear trend, uh, a bull market in, in, in the dollar uh, last week. So, and if that's the case, I, I would expect the dollar to be on the weaker side for the, for the next five to seven years. These are long trends. When currencies break a trend, it's a long time. And I think it's a reflection of what we've talked about, the deficits with the, the funding and you know, the, this unprecedented times, the dollar sees it. And I think the dollar weakening is, is, is a precursor to what the future looks like. Yeah. And a weaker dollar just throws fuel on the inflation fire yeah. through imports yeah. and commodity prices. Yeah. yeah, and deficits don't matter until they do. I think it was Danny that, that pointed out, or maybe it was you, Cameron. But, uh, you know, when, when we're paying treasury rates at, you know, a few basis points out to uh, 160 on tens, we can afford that deficit. When rates normalize, if and when they normalize, we're back to three or 4%, that's an enormous problem. Yeah, the average maturity of US Treasury debt is, is five and a half years. So to say that just because debt is cheap, it, 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 it's not a problem, ignores the fact that there is refinancing that, that has to happen. And the US government has not termed out the debt like some corporates have. You know, they're not Austria uh, issuing 100-year bonds. Uh, they've been just minimizing the, the current interest rate, which means that they really haven't been increasing the maturity of, of that debt. So Dan's point's right about this secular uh, or at least multi-year transition in the dollar. Um, that, is, that has been the, the flow of capital into the U.S. because it had better growth rates, interest rate differentials, and a stronger currency. If those, that flow of capital that we've been receiving from overseas begins to reverse, then that, then that, that, subsid, uh, that foreign subsidy of interest rates goes away. And then that's, that's, ex that's when you take the cap off that we've seen and you can really get an accelerant in the other direction. And so that has implications for asset prices, whether it's equities, commodities, uh, fixed income, domestically and globally. So that, that dollar trend, I think, is a fulcrum of a lot of activity. That's a key point because with the falling dollar, what we've seen over the last six months is foreign central banks have bought a lot less treasuries. Mm -hmm. and, and Cameron, you know, some of the gray hair you have on this call for perspective anyway. You know, I hope you're not talking about me. <laughs> no, not you. Not, you. Not, not Johnny either, but um, yeah. I, I've got enough for, for all, all five of us. But, um, you know, the deficit question has been around for a long time. And I, I remember in the 90s, it was kind of front and center. Uh, I think it was 94 where the Republicans kind of gained control of Congress and Clinton realized he needed to pivot and he did. And, you know, we actually had some balanced budgets back then. But now what we're, we're throwing trillions around like uh, we used to be scared about billions. And um, I, I, I just think it, it has to have an effect. The dollar is maybe one of the first canaries in the coal mine. Um, so it's the, the numbers are so astronomical right now. Um, I'm not sure we all have our heads around what seven trillion really is. 
I mean, it's an enormous amount of money. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I did this little trivia, you know, it's, I, I love the way the Congress throws around a trillion here and a trillion there. If you were paid a million dollars a day from when Jesus was born to today, it's only 960 billion. <laughs> <laughs> so just think about that. And we're throwing around trillions like the, like the dollars. Wow. I think to your point, I mean, the fact that almost all the yield curve is at negative real rates in a time mm -hmm. of accelerating growth is completely unprecedented. And I don't see how that perpetuates without some of the effects we've all been talking about. And I also think, you know, the, the, the COVID experience, obviously, we've come out of it, you know, recently uh, pretty strong to suggest the numbers. But, you know, people are w wondering why the 10 year hasn't risen. And again, we're, you know, we're an arbitrage society that the, the, the German Bund has really held the dollar, held, held the 10 year, our 10 year uh, down because Europe's coming out of the COVID a lot slower than we did. And I think because of that, it's kind of locked in that spread between the Bund and the 10 year. I think as Europe comes out and Germany economy picks up and the Bund, you know, you'll see some pressure on those rates. I think that the 10 year note will probably get to 10, 2% pretty quickly. Do you think, uh, each of you, do you think that the 10-year ends closer to 2% or closer to 1.5% at the end of this year? And where do you think it can go in 2022? Well, I'm in the 2% camp. Um, uh, again, as I said, I I'm not so sure of the economy coming out like everybody thinks it's going to come out. Uh, I, I would say that 2% and then we kind of we kind of uh, go sideways for a while and, and reassess what's going to go, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, that gets my vote too. So then this, this raises a, 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 the biggest question, which is how do you invest in this landscape? Because we've talked about equities being extremely expensive. We've talked about yields being extremely low and possibly moving higher, which makes that 40% bond portfolio really difficult to, to navigate. So what do you do in this environment? How do you invest for the long run when everything is telling you that forward return should be more muted? I think it's it's very, very difficult. I mean, you've, you've seen rolling corrections in past markets. I don't know the phrase for the antithesis of that, but we've now seen rolling rallies. I mean, first you had growth stocks and then we shifted to value. And then we went from large cap to small cap and from U.S. to international and everything has rallied. So, and as you said, rates are still low. I, I guess you, you just have to be balanced. You keep some cash as Tim alludes to, but you have some dividend stocks, you have some of the growth players, you have some international, you, you keep some powder dry. And then the fixed income side, there are still some pockets. I think intermediate credit, triple B, double B, I think structured products, the ABS market still has some opportunity. And then also privates. So, um, I, you know, I don't think there's any magic bullet. I just think you have to stay valued. And as, you know, as Tim phrased it, find pockets of value when you can. Well, private equity certainly has attracted a lot of money in a low interest rate environment, which makes a lot of sense. But if in fact we think that rates can go higher, and of course, some maybe some regulatory changes as it relates to private equity. You know that may that may uh, that may change. Uh, I, I think things. I think it's going to be very very difficult. And and let's face it, a lot of these you know people are flocking to triple C's and to the junk credits because they felt well the Fed's there and they could always finance and they're allowing you know these companies that would have gone under to finance and, and to stay afloat. At some point in time, that that the music stops there.
and uh, and that's probably at a point when rates start moving higher that you know we're gonna we're gonna start seeing some credit problems. So far, we haven't talked about any we haven't talked about bankruptcies and and credit difficulties for a while. That's probably the next phase of this. I agree. I mean, triple C's are at all time low yields, and I, I just don't see why anyone would venture that far down the credit spectrum right now. As again, as as you and Tim have both said, it's not. It's not time to reach. I, I think there's some themes. I mean, infrastructure is an obvious one. Um, a lot of parts of the real estate market look like they're beginning to um, move back up. But um, you really have to pick and choose your spots, in my opinion. Yeah, it's quite likely that the deepest value reopening, junkiest parts of the market has already had its easy money been made, that things got mispriced in the initial reaction post the, you know, post the market meltdown and there was still uncertainty, but over a year now since, and the fact that you're back near pre-COVID levels would argue that to continue to reach and turn a blind eye to credit issues because you think that that there's still room for improvement likely means that you're not getting fully compensated for the risks you're taking on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on the on this idea about reaching for returns, we've seen a massive boom in retail investing really over the past year and a half. But is this a, a good or a bad thing to have broader retail participation in markets? I, I think it's a I think it's a good thing, but I think investing is one thing, speculating is another. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I see it in my kids and their friends. Everybody's on Robinhood, people, you know, and and then all of the many of these checks that have gone in from the government have gone right to Robinhood. You know, they haven't gone into into putting food in the, on people's ta- on the on the table, then so to speak. I think investing when you're young is is a great thing to do, and I think it, it, that forced savings is is terrific. But a lot of the, the young people are looking to get rich quick and, and, they're, and they're involved in some, you know, whether it's Reddit conversations or some of these, uh, these fad stocks or just short squeezes. I don't think that's healthy. But unfortunately, you can't have one without the other. The theory is good. The practice hasn't been. Well, it does feel dangerous when everybody thinks that this is easy and that super normal returns are abundant and going to continue into the future. You know, when you can make 100%, 200% in a couple of months, and that's what people expect, it falls very quickly into the camp of speculation and gambling and moves away from the camp of, of investing. Yeah. And, and I think COVID has fueled that fire. <clears throat> you know, you look at the game stocks over the last year, you know, people are sitting at home and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're gambling from home and the, the apps and the iPhone makes it very easy to do that. And I think there's an indoctrination now in speculation and gambling as opposed to investing. And I don't, I don't think that's a, that's a, I don't think that's a good thing. There's a lot of people supposing that this, that the retail investor is going to stay around, that you've ignited a fire in them and they're going to continue to be more participant in the in the markets. But history would tell you that after the last time we had a retail boom, which was during the dot-com bubble, the retail investor really went dormant for you know, what ended up being almost 20 years. They got pretty snake bit. So 
it'll be interesting as we see some of these trades unwind, whether it's in crypto or meme stocks and people get burned, mostly with leverage added on top, because we know they've had a lot of leverage, a lot of options positioning. If they still stick around and want to participate when the casino nature of the market might turn against them. I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, you know, and I think Dan was trying to draw the distinction between investing and, and speculating. And, uh, you know, we were all around for the dot com and that was just rank speculation. You know, everything was valued against just because one thing is high. Well, this one's getting, uh, you know, trades at 50, 60, 100 times, whatever, uh, not even earnings. Um, well, then that means this should be worth X. And then that means then this should be worth, you know, Y. And it was all, it was all a bubble and just pure speculation. So some of these stocks, I do think people will get burned. Um, and, but, but if they're investors, hopefully they learn from it and come back and, and have a life, you know, lifetime of investing. But the, the speculation that's going on is probably not healthy and, uh, and it's with, with money that they probably shouldn't be speculating with. So here raises an interesting question, which is that we are seeing more and more of finance being done in a decentralized fashion, DeFi, whether we want to loop it into the broader crypto world. But how does the Fed navigate uh, an environment where more activity is happening outside of the traditional money market funds, for example? And you, do you think that we see the Fed pursue a digital currency uh, within the next five years? I absolutely, I absolutely think they have to. China's already done it. And, and China, you know, that's the look at China. The interesting thing about China is that we injected $7 trillion because of the COVID, the, the COVID problem. They injected nothing. They just shut the whole place down. And when you look at what China spent versus the rest of the world, it was really virtually nothing. And so they came out of this thing very, very, very po- in a very positive way. They are currently, I mean, the best thing for China right now is to destabilize the dollar. And I think they are trying to develop a, a, uh, a, uh, a digital currency. And I think we have to as well. And I think that, you know, it's almost like the, with the Bitcoin craze, you know, if you can't beat them, you have to join them. I think the Fed should do more in terms of, instead of knocking Bitcoin, try to regulate it or try to make it more socially acceptable. Uh, because as you say, the outside world is going to become bigger than the, the regulated world. And, and, and I think the genie's out of the bottle on that. You can't put that back together. There's a general mistrust of governments all around the world, and that's not going to change. And I think that's the reason that these, are, these digital currencies are bubbling up. But certainly the, the governments, you, there was a, I think it was a uh, Wall Street Journal and New York Times article over the weekend that showed the percentage of transactions in Bitcoin uh, that went for illicit purposes being the majority or, or a very high percentage of, of overall transactions. And so if you're sitting as a government, you go, well, I want to, to, rein, you know, to, to rein that in at the same time that I need to, if I'm reining that in, I need to provide a different alternative, which kind of goes against the whole idea of decentralized finance in the first place, but alas. Yeah. 
So maybe maybe let's let's shift gears and talk about the industry and and let's start with some observations about how you've seen the industry change over recent years. And then we can transition into a discussion of where you think it's going. I'll give you a one word answer, speed. (laughs) And I I was thinking about this a little bit. You know, when when I first got into the business 40 years ago, the market's Fundamentally may not have been that different. I mean, certainly you've had, you know, different types of instruments created in deeper markets, but the speed of information was glacial compared to what you have today. And it goes back to questions of liquidity and how fast, um, you know, money moves around into different sectors and how fast information moves. And everybody has the same information on both sides, buyers, sellers, institutional retail, the street, um, and institutional investors, and it's just a massive sea change because of how fast information moves. You know, structurally, um, the industry's changed tremendously. I mean, we all know guys that, you know, have had to change careers. Their jobs just don't exist anymore. Um, you know, uh, I think, was it just last week that the Chicago Merck shut down open outcry mm-hmm. you know when we were coming up i never would have thought that i never would have thought the specialist system uh wouldn't wouldn't be around anymore so i mean there, those are just huge structural changes um and we're obviously not going back so to, to don's point it you know the speed in which information travels and the technology uh that is enabled uh, and maybe there are efficiencies, but I think there's some ramifications of the efficiency um, in terms of liquidity when during a crisis. But um, but it, we can't deny that there are um, there are just simply jobs and and careers that have had a completely you know pivot. Imagine how boring the sequel to Trading Places would be without open outcry. And it's just two computers yelling at each other, sell Mortimer, sell, uh, without, the, without the trading floor. Uh, Dan, any, any thoughts on that? Uh, I had two, two, two uh, comments. I remember back, back in the 80s, it, it, the interesting thing was the dealer community, <clears throat> the intermediaries, the Goldmans, the Merrills, the, the intermediaries were bigger than a lot of the customers. Today, the customer base dwarfs, dwarfs the intermediaries. And the intermediaries that's supposed to be there that provide liquidity, well, you really can't. And as Timmy said, when the market goes one, one way or another, you just have to get out of the way because the, the size of the customer base now is so large, they really dominate where, what, you know, where things go. And, it's, it, it's, uh, and, and, you know, and being an intermediary in this kind of a market, I understand that for the Vulcan rule that taken away their ability to take risk, they're probably, they're probably happy about that. Because again, when the tides turn, there's no way that anybody could produce, they could provide the liquidity that we used to be able to back in the eighties, just impossible. So how do you think the risk management function evolves then going at, you know, in this new environment, you know, how, how does it, how does it navigate you know, what is seeming to be inherently riskier uh, operating environments? 
Yeah, the, the, the biggest risks are usually always credit related, credit related risk. And, you know, the derivatives have been boogeyman's for, for, they boogeyman for a long time. And the derivative market has gotten so large, it's, it's really incomprehensible because when, when things go wrong, everything correlates to one. You know, every, everything gets sold. It's, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Bath and I think that, unfortunately, is putting the Fed in the position they're in. The Fed is the landlord, you know, the, they're the provider of the of last resort, provider of liquidity to calling the timeout and say, we can't let this go any further for the good of the world. And I don't, you know, there's not a good answer for that. And I think, you know, it's, it's the, again, the Powell, used to be the Greenspan put, the Powell put, um, the Fed's in a tough spot and, and the market knows it and the market's going to take advantage of that as well. So I don't know the way out of this. I, all I do know is that the customers just keep, money just keeps growing. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's never going to stop. And how this whole mechanism of, of risk transfer is going to take place as this happens is going to be a pretty tricky business. So I think we can we can wrap it up there. Just wanted to say thank you all for your time and, and for sharing your insights. And this has been a really fun and interesting conversation as always, and happy that we have the opportunity to share it with more people. So thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Johnny, thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed Field Points of View, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. It helps more people find the show. The preceding content is for informational purposes only and based on information available when created. It is not an offer or solicitation, nor is it tax or legal advice. It does not consider your financial circumstances, objectives or risk tolerance, and could be unsuitable for you. Fuelpoint Private encourages you to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions.